When faith shall be sight, we sang in the last stanza of that hymn, that'll be a glorious day. No faith needed in heaven. We'll be walking by sight instead of by faith. Won't that be glorious? It was right glorious here, singing that. Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews, the sixth chapter. And let's finish this interruption that the Apostle Paul made in his comparison of Jesus Christ and the New Covenant to all all the things that could possibly be referred to or compared against under the Old Covenant. In verses 9 through 12 this morning, Paul takes a little bit of the edge off his rebuke, off his warning of the Hebrews, and he tells them in verses 9 through 12 that he is persuaded that they have truly those things that accompany salvation, that he believes they are God's elect, not only eternally, but they've been practically converted, and that he's not really in that much fear for them falling away, at least for the most part, because he's convinced that God will not forget their work and labor of love. He just exhorts them to keep showing the same level of diligence today, tomorrow, and unto the end, that be not slothful, don't get lazy, but be diligent in faith and patience to inherit the promises, because those are the two things required. And now let's take a look at these two qualifications mentioned in verse 12, when it says that we are to be diligent and not slothful in order to follow men. There are men we are to follow. They are men given to us in the Word of God as examples of men who through faith and who through patience inherit the promises. Now, can you think of another chapter, maybe somewhere in the Bible, maybe in this book, where he's going to give us a great list of men who were known for their faith and patience that we should emulate. Hebrews chapter 11, where we have what we commonly call the Hall of Faith. Instead of the Hall of Fame, it's the Hall of Faith, where a great number of faithful characters from the Old Testament are given as our example. But I want you to turn to Romans chapter 4 and see the example of Abraham. Abraham is the father of the Hebrews. Therefore, he is the preeminent example to use with Hebrew readers. And let's look at Romans chapter 4 and see the faith of our father Abraham. And do you know we as Gentiles can say that? According to Galatians chapter 3 and verse 29, if we're Christ's, then we are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. We are the sons of Abraham through Christ because he is the true seed, singular, of Abraham. Now in verse 17, we read, As it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations. That's God's word to Abraham. I have made thee a father of many nations. Observe the verb tenses. Not I will make you, but I have. Past tense. Before him whom he believed, even God, who quickeneth the dead, and calleth those things which be not as though they were. God is of such infinite power that when he says 
He has done something. It is as good as done. He doesn't need to use the future tense. You must use the future tense. God does not have to. He can use the past tense. I have made thee a father of many nations when as yet poor Abram didn't even have his son. Did he quicken the dead? That isn't re what kind of quickening is that referring to? Is that Ephesians chapter 2 quickening? Or is that the quickening of Abraham and Sarah? Let's read on. Verse 18. Speaking of Abraham, who against hope believed in hope. Oh, does that make any sense? There was hardly grounds for hope, but he believed in hope anyway. Who against hope believed in hope, that he might become the father of many nations. According to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead, when he was about an hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. And therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. It was an evidence that Abraham was a righteous man for the degree of faith he could exercise toward God. I mean, Abraham knew that he was now impotent, unable to father children. He looked at Sarah. She was well past menopause. He knew that she was unable to mother children, and she had never conceived anyway. But he looked at all those things, and it tells us he didn't consider them. Now, the Bible tells us some things to consider and some things not to consider. And these were a couple not to consider because God had said, Sarah shall bring forth a son, and in her seed will I bless you and all other nations and make of you a great nation and a father of many nations. He considered not... That is so important in verse 19, and being not weak in faith, he considered not. He considered not. Faith at times requires us to ignore natural circumstances. Faith requires us to ignore natural circumstances. The Bible says we walk by faith, not by sight. That means there are some things you're going to see that you're going to ignore and not even consider them and simply believe the promise of God. Because God will lay things out for you that you're going to say to yourself, I can't have that. I can't have that. You're walking by sight. There are certain things you ought not to consider and to trust in God, which Abraham did. He just ignored the fact that he was impotent. He ignored the fact that Sarah was impotent. He ignored their ages. And he had great faith in God. And he was... Partially persuaded, fully persuaded that what he had promised he was able also to perform. God's ability is the basis for great men. Great men trust in God's ability, not in their own. When you're trusting in God's ability behind your own ability, you'll attempt anything for God. Great men have great faith. And that doesn't mean they have great confidence in themselves. How much did Abraham have? He knew he was dead, but he trusted in the living God. Now come back to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. And while you're holding your finger there, look at Hebrews 11 and 1, which gives us a definition of faith. Now faith is the substance 
of things hoped for. Faith gave Abraham a picture of a boy coming from Sarah's womb. And it was only faith that could have done that. Why, the poor woman looked like a 90-year-old woman. You say they lived longer back then. The way Abraham speaks, they died reproductively about the same age we did, we do, or somewhat close to it. Because he wasn't even, he didn't think it was a borderline case. He knew he and she were both dead reproductively. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for. Abraham had such faith in God's ability, it was as if he already had the child. He was fully persuaded. Not only that, faith is the evidence of things not seen. I've preached on this before. Evidence is something you take into a court of law to prove something. And faith is sufficient for proof. Faith is sufficient for proof if it is resting on the promise of God. Because God's able to keep His promise. Are you able to believe it? If you're able to believe it, God's promise plus faith equals evidence. Evidence! Not probability. Evidence. Proof. Full persuasion. And it's through that kind of faith we inherit the promises. There was a whole nation that listened to the report of the spies about walled-up cities, about large men, men of large stature. They did not have faith. They did not believe that God was able also to perform what He had promised. And therefore, they missed it. They could have had it. All it takes is believing in God's ability. But it is that kind of faith that we need to have, and that's what the kind of faith that Paul wanted the Hebrews to have. Sometimes God will declare a fact, such as Hebrews 11, 3. Through faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. God made all things out of nothing. Now, would you please explain that to me so I could believe it? Would you convince me of it and give me proof for it? Bring forth your evidence. I don't believe in totally disregarding creation and science working together to confirm the Word of God. But when the Bible tells me in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the Bible tells me all things were made by Him, without Him was not anything made that was made, I believe it. And I'm fully persuaded of it, and I have more evidence than any evolutionist could ever bring my way. Whether I could refute his arguments of so-called pseudoscience or not, I am convinced on the authority of the Word of God. Through faith, we understand. And the first verse just told us that faith is not based on Henry Morris. I'm thankful for men... You don't know who Henry Morris is. He's a doctor out in California that's dedicated his life to proving the scientific truthfulness of the Word of God by science. To confirm the Word of God scientifically. He's got a number of books that have been printed. If you want to look at the books, ask me. I'll show you the books. The books are sometimes profitable just to confirm your faith and maybe strengthen it. But I don't even like saying that. Faith rests on God's Word because you may have a fact given to you sometime in God's Word that you don't have a Henry Morris to go to. You've simply got the Word of God to rely upon. That's why you don't hear me giving seminars on science, evolution, and creation very often. 
If you can't reach our young people with the Word of God, if they don't believe the Word of God, they're not going to believe evidence like that. You say that's narrow-minded. It's as narrow-minded as Hebrews 11, 1 through 3. Amen. Through faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God. How did He create everything out of nothing? He did it. He's able to do it. I know He's able to do it. And I'm fully persuaded that He did do it. God may sometimes reveal facts. He may sometimes command you to an action, which you must either believe the fact or obey the action. And I use this word carefully. You must believe the fact or obey the commandment blindly. We walk by faith, not by sight. Now, if you're not walking by sight, guess what you are? You're blind. You're walking, you're believing, and you're doing, but you're not doing it with vision. That means you're doing it blindly. You know, some will accuse us. Why, you people just have a blind faith. I take that as a compliment. Thank you very much. Thank, I hope the Lord will say the same thing of me, that I had a blind faith. Now, there's a place in the Word of God for what is called apologetics. Apologetics is the defense of the faith, raising every argument that you possibly can, not only from the Word of God, but from reason and from history to prove your point. The apostles did that. That's why Jesus Christ appeared to above 500 brethren, so that there were verbal testimonies of eyewitnesses. We saw Jesus Christ after he was raised from the dead. Now, there you would use those witnesses if you were the apostles preaching the gospel whenever you had the opportunity to do so. God will give us miraculous events of healing, and whether you can understand them or not, it is something you can see. They were called sign gifts, things you could see. But there are certain elements of the Word of God that tells you to do something or tells you something God has done. You must believe blindly. Now, would you tell me about heaven? Now, don't go to the Word of God. That's circular reasoning, reasoning, you blind fool. And I like those two words also. Paul said, I speak as a fool, and faith is done without sight. But tell me about heaven. Tell me about heaven without the Word of God. Ever been there? Ever met anyone who's been there? Ever been to a travel agency and picked up any brochures with pictures of what it's like to be there? We believe it by the promise of God. And Abraham knew far less about it than you do. Hebrews chapter 6. Faith is confidence in God that acts regardless of sight. There are going to be times where you must do things that go against what you see. Let's say we have a young unmarried person in this congregation. They have a relationship with someone they have strong feelings toward. The person is giving evidence that they want to join the congregation. But they don't have that spiritual zeal and love for the truth and love for God that the party would like in a mate, in a spouse. Now they have two choices. They can either leave that particular person and trust God to provide someone out of the clear blue sky. Or they can walk by sight and say, this is all I've got right now. I've got to make it work. That's a practical application of what I'm talking about. And it'll be very easy for our young people now, next year, five years from now, to look around and say the pickings are slim. But if you'll obey God, 
the pickings are a whole lot thicker. And there's a whole lot more opportunity than if you disobey Him. We walk by faith, not by sight. There may be times where the one relationship that you see might have some potential, you have to end with nothing in sight. I'm emphasizing the word sight. Now, you don't know Dolph Painter and Melanie Danger very well, but they both made that kind of a decision. They didn't have much in the way of sight to go on after they ended some other relationships. But it didn't take long, about a week, for them to find out about each other out of the clear blue sky. That is an example in that area of our lives. What will you do? Will you walk by faith or will you walk by sight? You look around, you may not see anyone that's compatible. You may not see anyone that would just fit age-wise or other circumstances. And you look so longingly at the relationship you have going that you'd like to keep it and try to make it work. But you're walking by sight. You're walking like Abraham did when he took Hagar to be his wife. Leave Hagar. Cast out the bondwoman. God will bring you the free woman. And you know how I'm applying it in this particular example. God will bring you a promise. The Bible says, Whoso findeth a wife, findeth a good thing, and obtaineth favor of the Lord. Now that's a promise. Do we agree? The Bible says, No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. Is that a promise? How do you obtain that promise? Faith and patience, and walk uprightly. Faith which worketh by love. Faith and patience inherit the promises. And there's a promise. You may look at your children, parents, and think in your mind, your emotions helping rule your mind, as to some course of behavior you ought to follow. When you know what the Bible says, if you were to be honest with it, you really do know it's not a matter of confusion or questions. It's a matter of fear. What will you do? Walk by sight or will you walk by faith? If you do something the Word of God teaches relative to your children and they don't exactly appreciate you for it for a week or a month or a year, will you give up and walk by sight or will you walk by faith in God's Word? If you want to inherit God's promises, you'll walk by faith. If you want grief, you'll walk by sight. Abraham had grief in his household forever thinking, along with Sarah, of Hagar. Not only do we need faith, which is a great confidence in God's ability to do what He has said and an ability to reward you if you will diligently seek Him, we need patience. Patience means we are able to wait for an interval of time before we receive the promise. Patience also means we are able to endure affliction during that interval of time. Look at Romans, we read it this morning, Romans 8.25. Hope is patiently waiting for something. But look at Romans chapter 12 and see another use of the word patience. We often think of patience relative to time. Can you wait for the red light, or do you need to go through it? Can you wait for the little old lady, quote, unquote, to pull out in front of you at 20 miles per hour, or do you need to go around her on the shoulder of the road? That's what we usually think of with the word patience. 
It's a time consideration. But patience also involves how well you are able to endure affliction. Romans chapter 12 and verse 12, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation. God has set promises out before you that you may not realize upon obedience immediately. And He also may afflict you in the meantime. Things may go from bad to worse. You may be claiming a promise of God in a bad situation in your life, and it may get worse. But faith and patience inherit the promises. God called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees. What's the next thing that happened to Abraham? His father died. He then left where his father died and went into the land of Canaan. What's the next best thing that happened? Lot took all the good land and he ended up with the poor land. What's the next best thing that happened? There was a famine and he went down into Egypt. What's the next best thing that happened? And we could go on and on. Poor Abraham. He wandered about the land of Canaan and didn't own enough of the ground to put the sole of his foot on. Acts chapter 7 and verse 5 tells us. But he was obeying God's promises. But he had patience. He had patience. He knew God had promised it and he knew that God was able to perform what he had promised. He had faith and patience. We must quietly wait upon the Lord. Look at Psalm 37 with me. In the outline, you're going to find a number of comforting verses relative to waiting upon God. Children train parents. They wonder when they're going to see the results. God promised results. Wait for the results. Be patient. God has promised that those who will seek first His kingdom, God will take care of all of their material needs. Sometimes you seek first God's kingdom and it gets right downright pitiful. Your situation. Are you patient? Do you have faith? It will get better. God will keep His promises. Psalm 37, beginning at verse 7, Rest in the Lord. And wait patiently for Him. Psalm 37, verse 7, Fret not thyself because of Him who prospereth in His way. See, that requires patience. You've obeyed the commandment of God. This sinner over here has not obeyed. He's prospering. His kids are turning out well. Financially, he's a success. He's happy with life. He doesn't seem to have any concerns. You're obeying God. Financially, you're a disaster. Your kids are rebellious. And you're having other troubles. You're depressed and discouraged. That's the lot of the Lord's people. Why? Tribulation works patience, and patience experience and experience hope, and it'll make you a perfect person. If God, if God gave you the sweet bed of roses and the nice blessings of prosperity that He gives the wicked in general in this life, you wouldn't learn faith and you wouldn't become better. You would not be perfected. You would not be tried in the fires of affliction. Verse 7, Fret not thyself because of him who prospereth in his way, because of the man who bringeth wicked devices to pass. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not thyself in any wise to do evil. For evildoers shall be cut off, but those that wait upon the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. Do you believe that? That if you wait upon the Lord, you shall inherit the earth? Will you one day own this world? It will be called the new heavens and the new earth and it will be in your ownership. But what happens in the meantime? You see some wicked man getting away with something that you know is wrong, and you fret about it. You get angry. You say there's no use. David felt that way at times. Psalm 73. Patience. 
means you are not fretting against Him or God, but you wait in the Lord knowing God will keep His promise. It is a matter of time. Patience requires waiting out the interval between when God's promise is made and when He fulfills it. And patience also requires putting up with affliction. There are so many verses I'd like to look at. Look at Lamentations chapter 3. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations. Oh, was Jeremiah lamenting in Lamentations. It's called the Lamentations of Jeremiah. He had a miserable situation as he saw and witnessed the destruction of Jerusalem and the misery of that city. Leviticus, Lamentations chapter 3, verse 22. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. And see if this isn't a patient attitude. Because His compassions fail not. Lamentations 3.23 They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, saith my soul. Therefore will I hope in Him. The Lord is good unto them that wait for Him, to the soul that seeketh Him. It is good that a man should both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth, trouble, tribulation, affliction. And young men certainly experience it all. He sitteth alone and keepeth silence, because he hath borne it upon him. He putteth his mouth in the dust. If so be, there may be hope. Now that's getting down low before God and begging Him for mercy. He giveth his cheek to him that smiteth him. He is filled full with reproach. For the Lord will not cast off forever. But though He cause grief, yet will He have compassion according to the multitude of His mercy. For He doth not afflict willingly, nor grieve the children of men, to crush under His feet all the prisoners of the earth, to turn aside the right of a man before the face of the Most High, to subvert a man in his cause, the Lord approveth not. All those evil things, three of them listed in verses 34 through 36, that happened to the Lord's people, God does not approve of them. Though they're occurring, don't think God approves of it. He's just letting you suffer some affliction and bearing a yoke in order to make you better. But wait. Patiently hope. Rest quietly in the Lord. He will deliver and you will see His salvation. The book of Hebrews. These Hebrews were not experiencing great blessings for their profession of faith. Things were getting worse. They were losing their religion. They were suffering death. They were being forced to blaspheme. Many of them were in prison. They were seeing James and others losing their heads for the cause of Christ. It would have been very easy for them to have said, the promises aren't coming true. Christ isn't blessing us. He isn't defending us. And Paul is exhorting them to faith and patience. Those are the ones that inherit the promises. Oh, to be like Job. Turn back to the book of Job, chapter 2. He was a man who had patience. Job, chapter 2, verse 9. This is after the second batch of punishments from the devil. When he's got boils from head to foot and he's scraping himself with a broken piece of pottery. We read in verse 9, Then said his wife unto him, Dost thou still retain thine integrity? Curse God and die. What a low blow. Verse 10, But he said unto her, Thou speakest as one of the foolish women speaketh. What? 
Shall we receive good at the hand of God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this did not Job sin with his lips. God brings blessings and God brings tribulations in their due time. And when if it's God's timing, it's the right timing, and you should submit to them and patiently wait. Now look over at James 5, where Job is commended. He, James chapter 5, where Job is commended in the New Testament, beginning at verse 10. James 5.10 Take, my brethren, the prophets, who have spoken in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering affliction and of patience. The prophets are an example to us. They suffered affliction and they were patient. Take them. James says, take them. Do you have a prophet that you like? Do you have favorite prophets, hero prophets? Prophets that you admire for their faith and patience. James tells us to take them as examples. Verse 11, Behold, we count them happy which endure. It's the man that endures unto the end that will be happy. May not be in the present, but he will be. We count them happy which endure. Ye have heard of the patience of Job, and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. Do you believe that? Is the Lord very tender and of tender mercy? I mean, very pitiful and of tender mercy? If you believe that, short-term problems should not deter you from obeying God. Short-term problems should not discourage you. In the end, God will bless you. You will be happy. We count them happy that endure. What would you like to say about the end of Job? It says here, we have seen the end of the Lord relative to Job. What was it? A great multiplica a multiplication of all the blessings that were taken away from him under his trials and tribulations. God blessed him. That is the end of the Lord. But you must endure to get to that end. In any area of your life, you must endure. You must be patient. If God has commanded you to love in a relationship where you don't feel like love, love anyway, work to create the feelings, and in the end, you will have the feelings. And God will bless you. Patience and faith are necessary, and they're not easy. And I love worshiping and preaching a God that is not easy. I'm so sick of the God that is easy to serve. I want to preach for a real captain who's called me to preach. And that is not an easy believism gospel. Listen, they're writing books today wondering if you need to accept Jesus as Lord when you invite Him into your heart to determine whether you're really saved or not. I'm pressing the Lordship of Christ upon you right now. If He has commanded you to do something or He has stated facts, do you believe blindly, patiently? Will you endure any amount of suffering, a lack of fulfillment, troubles, discouragements, in the meantime, in order to obey the Word of Christ. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 20. Abraham is immediately raised as an example in verse 13. For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swear by himself. Two things are required in order for you to really, in order for you to obtain blessing. God's promise 
plus your faith. Your faith and diligence in faith and patience has just been described. Now the apostle is going to show these Hebrews it's no shortage on God's part about his promises. That's the point. Verses 9 through 12 describe our diligence in showing faith and patience. Verses 13 through 20 show the other side of the coin. God's made his promises very sure. For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself. God swore by himself. And the, the swearing is in verse 14, saying, Surely blessing, I will bless thee, and multiplying, I will multiply thee. And so, after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. Two ingredients. Patient endurance, a promise with an oath. Do you have anything less? Look at Genesis chapter 22. Don't look at Genesis chapter 22. Genesis 22, I'll tell you what it says. Genesis 22 is where Abraham offered Isaac on the altar. And when he was finished with his attempted sacrifice of Isaac on the altar, God said to him, Now I know you fear me. And then he swore. Right there. Now God had told Abraham that he was going to have a son and a seed and nations and a great blessing, and he was going to bless all nations 25 years before Isaac was born, and Isaac was old enough to carry the wood for the sacrifice up this mountain. He must have been at least 15 years old. Abraham had waited some time, hadn't he? Then God added an oath to it that the promise in Isaac of that being his seed, of all the blessings that would flow through Isaac, God confirmed them with an oath. There is no shortage on the part of God about his promises. Look at Exodus 32:13. I just want you to see another example. God swears frequently by himself. Swearing is very scriptural. Swearing is something that it's, it is called for from time to time. And I'll deal with that just briefly this evening. Psalm 30, Exodus, excuse me, chapter 32 and verse 13. Moses here is pray, praying, Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, thy servants, to whom thou swearest by thine own self, and saidst unto them. Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, that is Jacob, heard the oath and promise of God that he would bless them. And you can follow Exodus 32:13 right through the Old Testament. God often swore by himself because he could swear by no greater. Which brings us down to verse 16. For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. When you have two witnesses in court, even in the United States in the late day of 1988, how do you confirm the word of those witnesses that they are telling the truth? when their stories differ, or if you have a fear their stories might differ, you make them swear. I promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. That is swearing. That is using God's name properly. You are calling to record something greater than you to add credibility to your word. For men, verily, of a truth, obviously, always, frequently, men 
swear by the greater. Men will pick something to swear by. You know, sometimes they'll swear by their mothers. Because supposedly, especially to the mafia, you know, if you swear by your mother, you're really swearing by something significant and dear. And if you swear by your mother, or your mother's grave, or your mother's honor, or something like that, you must really mean what you're saying. Men verily swear by the greater. And an oath. These words are not difficult to understand. An oath, a promise, a commitment. For confirmation is to them an, an end of all strife. If there is strife between two men, the man that will swear by something greater is a man who has added credibility to his position. Now, what would you do if you were God and you wanted to swear to convince Abraham you surely are going to receive blessing? Abraham, I am going to bless you. I want you to know I'm going to bless you. Because you've brought Isaac up here on Mount Moriah and prepared to sacrifice him, I am going to bless you. What if you were God? How would you swear? You need to swear by something greater. You don't want to swear by something lesser. The only thing he can do is to swear by himself. That is not a deep thought here. He had to swear by himself because he is the greatest infinite being, thing, object in this entire universe by which to swear. God does not condemn swearing in Scripture. You know, there, there are churches in this nation, the vast majority of churches, that you shouldn't swear. You shouldn't swear. You know, parents teach their kids you shouldn't swear. Well, why don't you define to your children what you mean? Why don't you define what you mean? Yes, the Bible says, and let's, why don't we look at James' account of it. James chapter 5. This is where you need to rightly divide the word of truth. Is it right to swear? There's a whole denomination in this country called the Jehovah's Witnesses that refuse to take an oath in court because of this verse, James 5.12. But above all things, my brethren, notice the importance, above all things, my brethren, swear not, neither by heaven, neither by the earth, neither by any other oath, but let your yea be yea and your nay nay, lest ye fall into condemnation. Now, if that's all the Bible said, I think I joined the Jehovah's Witnesses on that particular point of their practice. Now, there's a statement saying, don't swear. I can take you to where Jesus said, don't swear at all by heaven or by earth, just like James did here. Because, and I've been over this before, so I must hurry. They were speaking to Jews. The Jews had corrupted proper swearing. Both Jesus spoke to the Jews and James was writing to the 12 tribes scattered abroad. They're writing to Jews. Because Jesus himself swore, Jesus responded to swearing in his trial, the Apostle Paul swore. And we wouldn't have a disagreement like that in Scripture. Jesus Christ interprets the dilemma for us over in Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23. Now Jesus said, swear not at all. James said, above all things... Swear not, lest ye fall into condemnation. Matthew chapter 23, Jesus will correct the excesses of the Pharisees. Matthew 23, beginning at verse 16. Woe unto you, you blind guides, which say, Whosoever shall swear by the temple, it is nothing. But whosoever shall swear by the gold of the temple, he is a debtor. Well, they had a tradition among the Pharisees that if you swore by the temple and you didn't keep your oath, that's okay. I mean, the temple's not that important, but don't swear by gold. Now, does that sound Jewish? 
Listen, the byword and proverbs that are made today about the Jews are scriptural. God promised that the Jews, or those who claim to be Jews, would have bywords and proverbs accompanying them the rest of their existence. Gold is more important than their temple. Makes sense if you're reading Matthew and you know that Christ is addressing Pharisees. Verse 17, Ye fools and blind, for whether is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifieth the gold. Good point, Jesus. What's greater? Verse 18, And you have this tradition, Whosoever shall swear by the altar, it is nothing. But whosoever sweareth by the gift that is upon it, he is guilty. I mean, if you swear of something of uh, financial value, then you better keep your oath. Ye fools and blind, for whether is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifieth the gift. Whoso therefore shall swear by the altar, sweareth by it and by all things thereon. And whoso shall swear by the temple, sweareth by it and by him that dwelleth therein. And he that shall swear by heaven, sweareth by the throne of God and by him that sitteth thereon. The point is, Jesus Christ takes all of that false swearing back to God. If you're going to swear, there's only one way to swear, and we still swear that way in U.S. courts. So help me God. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1 to see Paul swear that way. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. I've got 20 or 30 passages here to look at relative to swearing, but we're not going to look at them. Let's just see Paul here in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Now, Paul hadn't been to see the Corinthians for a while, and he wanted to convince them as to the reason why. Moreover, I call God. This is 2 Corinthians 1.23. Moreover, I call God for a record upon my soul that to spare you I came not as yet unto Corinth. The reason I haven't come to see you yet is because I want to spare you. Because the way he felt about that church, if he came, he was going to come with the rod. But he swears, by God, I call God for a record upon my soul. He is appealing to the greatest being in the universe to add credibility to what he's saying. That's the reason why I haven't been to Corinth yet. It's proper to swear if you meet the conditions for proper swearing. The conditions for proper swearing are the proper religion. You better not take the Lord's name in vain. If you call God for a record upon your life or upon some commitment you made, you better make sure you have been living up to that commitment. You better make sure you've been living up to the Lord whose name you are taking. Second Timothy 2.19 puts it this way, Let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. If you're going to take Christ's name, you better make sure you have departed from iniquity. Proper religion is required for proper swearing. Second qualification, the proper object. People to this day swear by so many things and never know it. The Pharisees were swearing with the temple, by the altar, by the gift, by the gold, whatever they could think of, by heaven. People today will say, I'm not, not going to say it, People today will swear by all sorts of things. Excrement, sexual acts, sexual organs. Aren't we a gross, perverse society 
when in order to add credibility to our word, we appeal to things like that. Think about what swearing is. Why do those oaths come out of mouths in the heat of the moment in order to confirm their word, and they usually refer to excrement, sexual acts, or sexual organs? Think about it. Man is appealing to a greater object. Man is appealing to something greater to confirm his word. Just think about how the average worldling responds when he hits his thumb with a hammer and wants to convince you that it hurt. How does he convince you? When you accuse a worldling of doing something wrong and they are trying to lie out of it, deceive you, avoid it, what kind of oaths will they appeal to to add credibility to their word? The only proper object for swearing is God's name. Look at Deuteronomy 6.13. Deuteronomy 6.13. It's amazing that in our court system we still practice Bible religion. Deuteronomy 6.13. The only name you should ever take in an oath, the only appeal you should ever make is to God Himself. You know, that's the very worst form of swearing I was ever told as a child. Never take the Lord and serve Him and shalt swear by His name. How does it honor God? Well, when you swear, you are appealing to the greatest object you know. And if you use God's name, you are recognizing Him in a transaction with another man as the greatest object in the universe. He likes that kind of attention. If you're ever going to appeal to anything to prove your word, let it be the name of God. And make sure you avoid using God's name for inappropriate occasions. For the third qualification of proper swearing is the proper occasion. We are not to swear for light matters. Let your yea be yea and your nay nay. If you say yes, you're going to do something, or no, I'm not going to do it, let those words stand. Only when you are called into a conflict, or you are striving with a man, an oath ends strife. It isn't to be used all the time. But how many times do people go around saying, golly, gee, gee whiz. Holy Moses, holy smoke. Smoke isn't holy. There's only one that's holy, and it's God. Right. Moses wasn't holy compared to God. Only God is holy. Holy cow. Well, now, some Israelites once thought that a cow was holy, but God judged them, and they drank it as Kool-Aid for the next month because Moses ground it and put it in their drinking water. But so many times we let... My goodness, I didn't know you were good. Heavens to Betsy. Heavens. My lands. We're appealing to all sorts of things. Where do those words come from? It's an oath. You are throwing out words to add force to your sentence. Darn it. God darn it. Dog nabbit. Dang. Where are you getting those words? Those are euphemisms for swearing by God. Proper religion, proper object, proper occasion, only to end strife, and the proper action that follows if you swear to your hurt and you realize I shouldn't have made that oath, you go ahead and keep it anyway. Can you think of a man in the Bible who once swore presumptuously and had to keep it relative to his daughter? Jephthah. He said, Lord, if you'll give me the victory in this battle when I come back, 
the first thing that meets me, I'll offer it in a burnt sacrifice to you. Guess who met him when he came back? His one and only daughter. He didn't offer her as a burnt sacrifice. He kept her as a perpetual virgin, and she was honored as that in the nation of Israel. But he fulfilled the promise to God. He kept his oath. Swear to your hurt, and you keep it, is what Psalm chapter 24 describes as the character of a righteous man. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for God will not hold him guiltless that takes his name in vain. If you ever swear or let God's name out of your mouth or use the word holy or glory or words that are God's name, you are swearing and you are using God's name in vain because it's a vain occasion. Then if your action isn't right, it's vain action. If your religion isn't right, you've got a vain religion. If you're using the wrong object, it's a vain object to swear by. You only swear by God for serious situations, and then you have a religion that backs up your use of God's name, and you do whatever you said you would do. Otherwise, let your yea be yea, and your nay nay, and if you're in court, put your hand in the Bible and swear. And if the Jehovah's Witnesses would read a little further in their scriptures, even in their scriptures, they could come to an understanding of what God intends relative to swearing. But looking here again in Hebrews chapter 6, God swore. God wanted us to know there is no lack on my part for holding promises out to you. It's all up to you. Are you going to be diligent, faithful, and patient? I've done my part. Verse 17, wherein, willing more, wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel confirmed it by an oath. The Bible speaks over and over again that the counsel of the Lord that shall stand. If he spoke, he will also do it. Isaiah 14, Isaiah 46. There are many devices in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord that shall stand. Proverbs 19, verse 21. The counsel of the Lord is immutable. Do you know what mutations are? They're changes. Mutant cells are changed cells. Mutation means to change. Immutable means without change. There's not even a shadow of change or of turning with God. His counsel is already immutable. But to even convince you further of his promises, he added an oath to it. As if his counsel saying, some promise, especially the promise of eternal life, was not enough, he also swore with an oath. Verse 18, that by two immutable things, his counsel and his oath, in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. These Hebrews were under tremendous persecution. But they had a great refuge to run and grab a hold of for their hope. You know that word refuge refers us back very subtly to the cities of refuge that Israel had. Remember the seven cities that were set up as cities of refuge? Let's say two men were out cutting trees down. The axe head came off one man's axe, took the head off his partner, and the partner's brother was there. And he loved his brother. And he thought that there was some malicious intent behind the slaying. The brother could take the man who had killed accidentally and slay him. He was free meat. It was open season. 
The only safeguard were two fast legs, a good map, and a nearby city of refuge. That was it. If you didn't make it, it was too bad. Now, you say, that's awful strict justice. You'd be very careful in driving your automobile while intoxicated, wouldn't you? I, can you imagine having that system of government in the United States today? Listen, we wouldn't have to waste money on cyanide pills and big jolts of electricity because the general populace would do it for the government. A city of refuge. Now, what if you had accidentally killed someone? Would you appreci appreciate the word refuge? And would you appreciate that city? I mean, as long as you made it to the door, it didn't matter if you had a heart attack and spent the rest of your life in a wheelchair after you got inside, you were safe. The avenger of blood could not enter into that city. You were safe. And there is in Christ and in the promises God has offered us a refuge far exceeding that. And that refuge is, in a, is a promise of safety. I will save them to the uttermost. I will lose none of them. And that comes from God's counsel, and in addition to that, an oath. Surely blessing. I will bless thee, and multiplying, I will multiply thee, in verse 14. And if you say to yourself, well, that promise was made to Abraham and the Jews. You need to read your Bible some more. That promise was made to Abraham and the Jews. Yes. But he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly. For he is a Jew, which is one inwardly. We are the Jews. And as Galatians chapter 3 and verse 29 tells us, And if ye be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Because we're in Christ. That promise right there in Hebrews 6.14 found in Genesis 22 is to you. Saying, surely blessing I will bless thee and multiplying I will multiply thee. Now he doesn't finish the promise. If you go back and read the promise, it involved a land, it involved a numerous people, and it involved many nations. Thank God he used the plural nations because we are in the United States of America today, and that promise is fulfilled in us. Through Abraham's seed, many nations have been blessed. Have we been blessed because of Christ? God fulfilled His promise. Is there a multitude far beyond what Abraham could have imagined when he looked up at those stars and tried to count them in Christ? I read in the book of Revelation, it's a multitude that no man can number. No wonder Abraham couldn't number it. What about the land? Should we write President Reagan on his way out and the next president on his way in that we ought to expend all national efforts in order to restore the city of Jerusalem to the Jews and build a temple in that place? Is that the land that was promised to Abraham? Acts chapter 7 puts it this way. Abraham was a stranger and a foreigner and a pilgrim and a sojourner and he didn't own enough soil to put the sole of his foot on. That's, those are Stephen's words in Acts 7-5. Yet God said, I will give you this land and to your seed forever. Yet, Abraham didn't have enough to put the sole of his foot on. Look at Hebrews chapter 11 for the explanation. 
Hebrews 11 for the explanation. Verse 9, speaking of Abraham, by faith he sojourned in the land of promise as in a strange country. God promised it to him, but it was still strange. Abraham never got it. Dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, they were nomads. They didn't own property. The heirs with him of the same promise. He had to buy a burial plot for his wife Sarah. He did not own property. Verse 10. How did he sojourn by faith? For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And there is no city in this world that has foundations built by God other than the church, which is a little taste of the city to come. And look ahead to verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the promises. They did not receive the full fulfillment of them, the, na the promises naturally. They died too soon. But having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them, and embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country. That is an heavenly, wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He hath prepared for them a city. Where is the city God has prepared in His promise? The heavenly Jerusalem, which is above and is the mother of us all. That promise there in Genesis 22, quoted again in Hebrews 6, is the promise of heaven given to Abraham and his seed. Who is the seed of Abraham? Jesus Christ. To whom do you belong this night? Christ. And if ye be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. The great promise to these poor Hebrews suffering so much affliction, losing out on the earthly Jerusalem, and I wish I could go preach a commentary on Galatians right now, losing out on the earthly Jerusalem were directed to the heavenly Jerusalem and that God not only promised it in His counsel, but also swore with an oath that by two immutable things in which God cannot lie, we might have a strong refuge, a place of safety, something to latch on to to bear us through the storms of life. There may be an interval of time between when you first hear that promise and when you realize it. You may receive afflictions in the meantime, but the promise is sure. Hebrews chapter 6. Titus chapter 1 tells us that God promised eternal life before the world began. And he uses the word promise. Eternal life was promised before the world began in his counsel. And then in an oath in Genesis chapter 22. Hebrews chapter 6 who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. When you profess Jesus Christ, you claim to be the true descendants of Abraham. You claim to be the true heirs of an eternal city whose builder and maker is God. That is what is involved in being baptized and taking the name of Christ. I am Christ. I am Abraham's seed. Heaven is mine. The fulfillment is found in me and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a great hope, brethren. 
Verse 19, which hope, that hope of eternal glory, we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast. It's not going to change, and it's definitely sure because God cannot lie. That hope is our anchor. Regardless of what might happen in this life, let family leave, let friends leave, let us lose our houses and lands, and yea, let us die the death of a martyr, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul. God promised in his counsel, and then he swore to try to convince you that there was a promise out there for you, that by two immutable things, the heirs of the promise might know the certainty of that promise. Therefore, we ought to be faithful and patient in pursuing diligently after that promise. And that hope enters all the way up into Christ and entereth into that within the veil. Now, what is within the veil? The presence of God. Jesus Christ is now in the presence of God for us. Hebrews chapter 9 Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, He has sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Our hope being in Christ goes all the way into the very presence of God. To a Hebrew, they thought it terrific that once a year they could stand around the tabernacle, around the temple, and watch the high priest take blood into the Holy of Holies once a year. They thought that was getting rather close to God. Our hope extends all the way into the presence of God within the veil. Whither, that is, the place, the location, within the veil, the forerunner is for us entered. There's so much there. Why is he called a forerunner? There's a whole lot of people running their races behind him that are going to get their second, third, fourth, and fifth after him. He is the forerunner. He ran there first, but we're running behind him. And he ran and for us entered. Jesus Christ is at the right hand of God, not simply for his own good. He is there making intercession for you. And he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him. And our hope is in him. That is how we will come unto God, is by the sacrificial work of our Savior Jesus Christ. Whether the forerunner is for us entered, that is into the presence of God, inside the veil, in the Holy of Holies, where God dwells with his people, even Jesus made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And he takes us right back to Hebrews 5.10. And he will elaborate now with strong meat in, verses, in chapters 7 through 13 relative to the doctrine of Christ. In the interruption we've had, a rebuke for not learning the Scriptures and not exercising your senses. A warning that if you fail of the grace of God and do not take advantage of privilege that God grants, you stand in danger of losing everything. And an exhortation, faith and patience, plus a sure promise of God, equals obtaining. Equals obtaining. You have to provide the faith and the patience. That's the only hope you can have of that eternal glory. If you have faith, you can be fully persuaded it is yours just like Abraham was fully persuaded. God is not lacking in His promise. His counsel is immutable, and He swore with an oath. Brethren, is your hope in a place tonight that is within the veil, in the very presence of God, where Jesus Christ 
the man Christ Jesus sits at the right hand of God. There is a throne room like that at this hour. Is your faith blind enough to see that far? Is your faith blind enough to see that far? And is your patience sufficient to disregard circumstances from now until the day you are there? Faith and patience inherit the promises. You fall away, you're giving evidence. You are rejected, you're nigh unto cursing, and you're fit for burning. That is the warning of Hebrews chapter 6. Jesus Christ, called and high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, has entered into the presence of God for us, and our hope should not be outside of Him. It should be all the way into that presence of God. He is our forerunner. And brethren, are you running the race with diligence to be found in Him at His appearing? May Jesus Christ bless the preaching of His Word.